you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Coming up on Total Access, the locker room. I rarely went to practice. Really? I got a job to do, man. You know, my job is to find the coach players. I was below slappy. I reported, I reported to the slappies, okay? That's how far down I was when I joined. Slappy. Yeah, right. I was the slappy's assistant. Welcome to NFL Total Access, the locker room. I'm Michael Robinson, joined by former head coach Brian Billick. We're going to let you guys in on what players and coaches really talk about inside the locker room. Today's podcast is all about life in the front office and what goes on behind the scenes. GM and NFL Executive of the Year, Scott Pioli, is joining us, and he talked about how he went from almost drafting a bus in Lawrence Phillips to drafting a home run in Jonathan Ogden. Fascinating. Yeah, you're really going to enjoy today's podcast because Scott Pioli gives some really keen insights into that relationship between the coaches, between the general managers, ownership, and where the power in the NFL is today. Let's bring in Scott Pioli, the guy who definitely understands how to build a team. And and he's been in the front office for most of his life. So, Scott, you got to tell us a locker room story, brother. That's one of the mainstays on this podcast. Let's hear yours. Yeah, locker room story. I'm going to go draft story, you know, and it was actually the lead up to the draft. And it was the 1996 draft. And we had just moved from Cleveland to Baltimore. I was part of that organization moved uh, and we became the Ravens in Baltimore. And it was maybe about less than a month before the draft because we got there in March Mm -hmm. um, into Baltimore. And there was a meeting going on. We were we had the board pretty well stacked and uh, Ozzie Newsom was in charge of personnel, but Ozzie wasn't the general manager. He wasn't the director of personnel. He had some uh, obtuse title. I'm not even sure what it was, but he was like the personnel guy. And then Phil Savage was the college coordinator. I was the pro coordinator. And uh, it was, it was right before coach. You got there. Uh, Ted Marchabrota was the coach and we're prepping for the draft. And there was this meeting that, all draft, you know, all people in football ops have to have with their owners, kind of giving them an idea of how the board might fall and what we would be looking at. And that year, we had pick number four, and it looked like the person that was most likely for us to to have a shot at that we wanted was Jonathan Ogden. Mm. And we were explaining there was a meeting. It was Ozzy, Phil Savage, myself with Art Modell and David Modell. And when Ozzy mentioned that. He was interested in, uh, and it looked like we were looking at an offensive tackle. Um, Art was kind of like taken back. He's like, you know, Ozzy, I had to move this team to Baltimore because, you know, we got to sell tickets. We got to sell the stadium. We got to sell. And tackles don't sell tickets. Oh, Tell me about this guy, Lawrence Phillips. Oh. Like, <laughs> so I won't get into all the details, but I will say this. It was one of the greatest moments in couple of days and weeks of leadership that I've ever seen by someone, meaning Ozzie Newsom, 
because he had this very close and complicated relationship with Mr. Modell. And he found a way. Again, here's here's this guy who's new to a position. We're new to a city. He's got to rebuild his franchise, Ozzy does. And he has to lead. And he has this idea. He knows what's right and what he wants to do. But he has to navigate closely with the owner and convince the owner that this is the best thing. And Ozzy was making a pick that draft. We had number four, and I believe it was number 26 overall. Mm-hmm. Ozzy nailed it because everyone knows in that 96 draft, Ozzy pulled the names down of Jonathan Ogden and Ray Lewis, and, and mm-hmm. the, the rest is history. Well, but it they, could have been Lawrence Phillips. That, w- that would have been a, a totally different history. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's worth that. mentioning, too, I think, in that, in, in having been with Ozzy all that time and, and hearing that story and talking to the principals around it. Um, now, in hindsight, it's easy to say, well, absolutely easy. You know, yeah, that, that was a hard decision to oh. make because Lawrence Phillips was pretty good. And and, and at a running back. And so, you know, and Ozzy will even say, you know, he kind of struggled with it as well because he recognized what that would be, you know, but there was a, there was an instinct, as you say, Scott, that Ozzy had that knew I can't, you know, because from a talent standpoint, it was, it this was a tough call, but, but he recognized in Jonathan and the kind of person he was, he checked all the boxes where he also knew we can't make a mistake being this new franchise, and there was just enough questions. So I give Ozzy a lot of credit for what was really a tougher decision than it sounds like it would be now because everybody oh, said, oh, yeah, 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 we all knew we were going to do that. You're exactly, you're exactly right, Coach. That was a really tough – because he was a great college player, Lawrence. Yeah, he was. With some issues, but no one knew the truth to the issues right. that he had. And the other thing is this. This is what I learned in watching Ozzy. His ability to sit there and listen to the people that he trusted and that he put, he listened to every single coach that had an opinion. He listened to every scout that had an opinion. He had his own, but he listened mm-hmm. and he would say, hmm, I didn't see that. But then he picked up on it and he was as collaborative. Uh, again, that's a big word now. Uh, <laughs> before collaboration was a word, you know, was a thing. <laughs> he did that and he listened to people. And that's what great leaders do. You listen to the people that know what they're talking about. And then you distill that information and make a decision. It was, uh, I've always said, Ozzy knew some, because people ask me all the time, what made Ozzy such a great general manager? And I say the same thing, Scott. He's the best listener. Yeah. I've ever been around. He truly does listen to you, yeah. uh, filters through it in the way that he does and whatever, but he, he really is. He's a great listener. And I think that's the key to why he gets the best out of everybody. Well, that's what great. That's what great leaders do. Great coaches do that. Great general managers do that. Um, and, and Scott, to you, how do you even have that conversation with an owner? Uh, because it's their money, so to speak, right? They're trying to make as much. It's a business. We have to be honest about this. It's a business for them, you know? How do you have that conversation? Because I, I can see it a scenario where an owner's like, no, this is, I, I want that guy. How do, you, how do you make that decision and how do you have that conversation? And, and here's the thing. This is where I was only 31 years old at the time and I'm sitting in that room not that my voice mattered, mine and Phil Savage's voices didn't matter, but we were the people that were, you know, the head of those two departments. And watching Ozzy navigate through that, and, and here's here's how you have the conversation. Mm-hmm. Ozzy just spoke absolute truth to power. 
Mm. Right. That's a phrase we all hear now. Truth. He spoke truth to the owner. It was not only his truth, but the truth of others. And if you tell the truth, I mean, you, you got a chance. Now, I know some organizations in some places where people in leadership roles feel that they can't tell their owner the truth because and there are some owners that 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 can't handle the truth or don't want to handle the truth or will not not do well with the truth. But again, it was a great lesson for me as a young person because, again, I was I was more you know, I was window dressing in there and listening, giving some opinions. But Ozzy was the leader. Now, fast forward to my next job with the uh, the New York Jets and mm. Bill Parcells. You know, the, the owner was really never around. It was Mr. Hess, um, Leon Hess, God rest mm. his soul. Um, good man. So there wasn't that. I didn't have the chance to view that. Then the next job. It's Bill and I go to New England, and we met with Robert and Jonathan Kraft at least once a week. We had what we called them the big boy meetings, and the four of us would be in there. And what I learned in that through through the process, too, was we always told Robert and Jonathan the truth. And I think when, when owners hear the truth and they know that they're getting the truth, an unfiltered truth, whether they agree or they disagree, it makes the relationship so much better. And again, I was really fortunate because the next job I had with Clark Hunt, I could tell Clark anything. And, and we we were co-workers, but we also, we were the same exact age, so we had this friendship. So I think the answer to the question is, how do you do that? You just tell the truth and you hope that you're dealing with someone that is accepting of the truth, even if they disagree with you. Now, uh, now, Scott, I'm asking you this because as a player, you know, I've seen a lot of general managers see um, uh, Schneider up there in Seattle. I was part of uh, with Scott McClellan when he built San Francisco um, before they made their run to the Super Bowl. Uh, and I would always see the guys come on the field, stand in the back and just kind of sit back there evaluating and then going upstairs. What's your what's the daily life like for a general manager? Like, what do you do when you wake up, man? It's funny because um I know a lot of general managers, personnel directors, like there's some teams where they go in mass out to practice. I rarely went to practice. Really? I got a job to do, man. You know, my job is to find the coach players. Now that was just the way that I was raised in the business and, 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 and the people that I worked for um, and for, and then later with, you know, alongside Belichick and Parcells, they were of the mindset, listen, in training camp, you need to be out there because we're evaluating and there's a mass evaluating and we're, you know, you're looking at not only the performance, but the behaviors, right? What's going on? Who's, and when you've got 80 guys in camp, you've got a lot of people to look at. But once the season started, for the most part, I always told the coach, whether it was Bill or whether it was Todd Haley or Romeo, if you need me at practice, I'll be at practice. If you don't need me at practice, because how much can I contribute to practice? Again, I'm a firm believer because I was taught just do your job. And it's the head coach's job to coach the team. My job is to help eliminate distractions so he can do his best job. Scott, aren't you, aren't you constantly evaluating talent? Absolutely. Isn't it a constant, uh, uh, an entire year process? All right. So, and, and this is, this is you, you're absolutely right. Practice lasts, what, maybe two hours? Hours, yeah. Okay, you can take those two hours, and if you watch tape with the head coach later on, you can knock out a two-hour practice maybe in 30 to 40 minutes, right? So now I've just gained an hour and a half 
of watching tape on college players mm -hmm. or pro prospects or the team that we're getting ready to, it was always all about efficiency and doing the job. Again, now if the coach wanted me out there for whatever reason, I would be out there, but that's not the system that I learned under. So I wouldn't, I would tell scouts, we don't need to be at practice. What are we going to do? Sit around with, you know, with our cup of coffee. Mm, I wonder what they're doing there. Exactly what they look like. True, Scott. <laughs> no, and, and again, I, I don't say that to be disrespectful or offensive, but we've got a job to do. The department's job is to find players so your team can win. I could sit, if I was working with Brian uh, or coach, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> if I was working with coach. My daughter's calling me coach. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and I could sit with you after practice for 40 minutes and we could and sure. we could watch and see the same things. And you know what? I probably understand better because, again, with all due respect, there's a, a personnel. People don't know all the nuance and all the things that coaches know. Mm -hmm. And if I was sitting with coach watching practice, I could learn more than I could standing on the field, not knowing what was actually happening or why it was happening. So to me, I'll take a half hour watching tape and use that other half to make our football team better. And it's interesting how the different teams do it differently. And I, when I first got to Baltimore, because I had come from Minnesota, where that's exactly right. The general manager, the personnel people, they were either on the road or looking at tape, and you never saw them at practice. So I get to Baltimore, and Ozzie is at every one of my practices. So my first thing is, well, man, shouldn't you be – Looking at tape, what are you? What are you? Are you looking over my shoulder? What's going on here? Yeah, <laughs> not that we're powering. What I learned, what I learned was, and Ozzy again in in the brilliance of the way by watching the players at practice. Part of it also was because you know the scouts then come off the road and they they well, how come the coach isn't playing my guy? You know, I we found this guy and he's not playing enough. Ozzy, you know, could kind of admit it. Going, oh, let me tell you why. Because at practice he doesn't know where the hell he is. Or he's making, you know, he, he could see why we were making the decisions that we would. And occasionally he'd say, well, tell me about this or that. But in, in 10 years with Ozzy, never once, not once did Ozzy say, you should be playing this guy. You should be playing that guy. You should do this. You should do that. He would ask questions because he would see at practice the development of a guy. Right. And who was practicing well, who wasn't. So it added a dimension that I learned to appreciate. And again, it was just the way of Ozzy's you know, taking in information all that he could on the current players as much as anything to deal with his his scouts who, as you know, always are coming in and going, ah, the coach is screwed up. He's not playing our, you know, fourth round pick, uh, you know, when he, he should be playing in front of this guy. And I thought it was it was different for me to get used to it, but really appreciated how it added to that dynamic. Yeah, and a couple of things really quick on that is, you know, knowing how Ozzy grew into the role. It was, you know, I was with him in Cleveland. Player, it was his coach himself. Yeah. And then what he was doing, he, he had a dual responsibility. He coached and scouted at the Cleveland Browns. Whoa, whoa really? Is yeah. that, he did that? So he was in all coaching, but then he did pro personnel and he would do. So he evolved into his role mm -hmm. where he was out. He needed to be out of practice the entire time when he worked under Belichick in those, I think it was five or six years in Cleveland. So that was part of his, how he learned the way I learned was differently, even though I was under the same, sure. same tutelage, you know, it, it's, um, so it, it's really interesting how those things work and, Again, I could sit and watch practice with a coach and and be pretty prepared. Now, one of the other things, the way that I would have that human interaction to see other things, even though I didn't go out to practice, 
everywhere that I went in, in New York at the Jets and also at the Patriots, I planned my workout daily to be in the, in the weight room the same you go. players were. So that's where I got to see my interaction with the players. My, and it was, and it was a, it was a, so I got to see that, that other part, which is part of the evaluation, like you're saying, sure. coach. and, um, and they, so I think players saw me a little bit differently too. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah. But I learned that from Parcells. Parcells would always go down on the treadmill when players worked out pre or post practice. Because you, I, I tell you one thing, you get a lot of great conversations um, yeah. in, the, in the locker room and in the training room. I mean, guys open up. That is our sanctuary. That's where we talk about things that went on at night. We talk about the clique of guys we may not like who's on our team. I mean, all of those things, the gossip of the team gets talked about in the weight room. And they're authentic conversations, yeah. too. And you're not judging. And, and once they realize that you're not judging in those moments, it, it, it becomes a safe place for everybody. A, a, a very much a safe place. Now, Scott, you've dealt with a lot of success, right? You've had a lot of success. You've been to Super Bowls, all of those things. You've also had some failures um, in, in this league as well. And again, as we all know, the like failure, everybody. yeah, like everybody, the failures are what propel us forward, right? That's what teaches yeah. us the lessons, right? How do you deal with all the noise um, from, a, from an organization standpoint, being a, being a leader, one of the leaders uh, in an organization, and maybe the media, guys like myself or Coach Billick, we're out here, you know, criticizing you and what you should have done or you shouldn't have released that player. Hey, I'm one of you now. Yeah, All right, my bad. Excuse me. You are one of us. Now you're on it's this amazing night. how much smarter we got, right? Oh, exactly. like, I mean, they I'm ran my ass out now. of Baltimore because I'm an idiot, and now I go back and it's like I'm this sage with all the answers. And Coach, tell us why. Wait, wait a minute. You ran me out. To, ran me to, out it's amazing how much smarter we got. How do you be an NFL expert? You know, that's right. <laughs> Just how do you how do you deal with that, man? You you deal with it differently in different. I should say for myself, I've dealt with it differently in different phases of my life. When I was younger, it, it affected me differently. I was more thin-skinned, um, sensitive, um, and 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 part of it is not just ego; it's the competitor in you. We're human, and I hear people say they block it all out and they don't hear anything. No, they hear. With all due respect, that's not true. We yeah. hear it, and we're human beings. And if you're not hearing it, then you're not human. And, and that's unhealthy also. Part of the beauty of this game is the fact that we feel, right? We feel winning. We feel losing. We feel success. We feel failure. You just learn to deal with it. And you have to find your own ways to deal with it. Um, and, and you're right. You know, I, I was blessed to be a part of success. I was a blessed to be a part of, you know, middling performances. And I failed epically. And I own all of it. You know, and you learn from all of it. It's um, and it's difficult. You know, and there's a lot of lot of difficult things that come with it because you know, in, in my case with with the failure, it came with an exclamation point of you know a situation with a player that you know you think you're going to see everything in this business and you're failing. We go going through this two and fourteen season, and you have a player that you love dearly take his life, and there's it's like this. It's this whole thing of um, we all take it so personally that that when we fail, even in this industry, it's very personal. And it's um, again, a good friend of mine used to say, this job isn't who I am. It's just what I do. And I remember thinking, God, how do you, how do you get to that? How do you separate? Yeah. How do you wow. Separate? Yeah. 
because it does become a, a part of our identity. And, and the truth is, I don't know if I, I love this person dearly, but I, I, I think that person was also lying to himself because if you yeah. put as much into it, it does become a, per, a part of your personal identity. It's tough to sort through it. I mean, it's no different than you. You're a player. Yeah. I mean, as a player, you would get criticized for your performance. The part that you hope for and you pray for is that, that people just criticize your performance and they don't criticize the performer. Mm. Open, you know, because that's when it gets tough. There were times during the during my failure when the attacks got very personal, you know, and I had a baby girl and I've got a wife and I've got a parents. And, and the, what people don't realize is the extension of us and the people that love us and all of these public things that people see isn't always all of what we are or who we are. Yeah, but, but I'm interested, Scott, if I may, uh, Mike, and of course, my, my, mine's a coaching background and, and you look at things a certain way when you're within the profession. And a, but I've, I've come to think over the last few years that this has been and this is not judgmental. It's not good. It's not bad. I'm not trying to make a critique of it. This has kind of become a general manager's league, has it not? Because is that other than in certain ex ex exceptions, and Bill Belichick is certainly one because the longevity has there, but at most of the power has it not gravitated towards, and that's why I think we're seeing more and more general managers getting fired at a quicker rate, where it used to be just the coach, but it's because, well, you've you've kind of, because that's where the cap gets managed and the final personnel. And do you see it the same way that it's kind of become a general manager's league? Ah, that, that's, that's a fascinating frame because I don't know if I agree that it's a general manager's league. And, and, and all of my general manager buddies and personnel buddies are going to be angry when I say this. <laughs> um, I'm okay with general managers starting to have a greater degree of accountability. Mm -hmm. um, because generally the general manager head coaching thing is a partnership. We, you know, we, everyone talks about it being a partnership, but it isn't always a partnership. I tell you, Brian, as you're saying, I'm, I'm processing this and I'm just thinking out loud right now. I almost feel like it's, it's almost become a president's league mm. because mm -hmm. coaches are held accountable. The people that don't get held accountable yet. They have interesting. It's, it's a fascinating thing, and we don't have enough time on this podcast, but I remember getting to the Patriots, and and very quickly, Bill had a pre-existing relationship with Robert and Jonathan. I quickly cultivated a good relationship, and I remember having this conversation, trying to explain to because there was tension, and there was this rub in the building between the football operations and the non-football operations, the, the business side. Mm -hmm. And I explained it to Robert and Jonathan is we as football people, players, coaches, personnel, people, scouts, GMs, whatever you want to call all of us, we have a shelf life, right? We get hired to get fired. Yet there's other people in the building that are lifetime employees. Mm. And there's this innately, again, because we're all a human they view us differently. We view them differently. And there's this built-in insecurity between the groups that no one ever works on, right? You're just told, all right, you have to accept those people. Those people have to accept you. But we never work on the reality and the, you know, the, the elephant in the room, which is that one of us isn't going to be here pretty soon. <laughs> right? And, that's a, and it's this real thing. So, uh, Brian, I know I digress here, but. No, no, it's, it's spot on. It's it's 
when people figure out how to keep that thing together, it's going to be a very, very healthy operation. And uh, when I when I joined Bill Walsh uh, in San Francisco, when you talk about just being a slappy, I was this. I was below slappy. I reported. I reported to the slappies. Okay, that's how far down I was when I joined. Slappy. Yeah, right. I was a slappy's assistant, but. Bill, who came in and ended up through a couple of different ways, ended up being both the, the head coach and the general manager. They started out and they were talked to Ernie Acorsi and George Young, whatever. Didn't turn out that way. So Mr. DeBarlow made Bill the general manager and the head coach, which I'm not sure wasn't Bill's idea, you know, really from the get go. But that's the way it was. And Bill, with that very same thing, we were very small organizationally, but he basically when he came in, fired everybody in the building down to the lowest and then hired 90% of them back basically for that reason say, now I want you, I just want you to know why you're here. Oh. Okay. Cause that mentality of, Hey, I, I was here before you, I'm going to be here after you that Scott's alluding to mm. that is tough organizationally to work through some of those that have, you know, goes through these transitions and they're not affected by it. Bill wanted to make sure they understand. Oh no, 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 no. You're here because of me. I know someone else hired you and you've been here a long time, but you're here because of me. And you and you better not forget that. And that's an important message to have. Well, with the kids call that these days, guys, that they, we call that flexing. That's what they did. He, flexed. <laughs> he was flexing. He was flexing on everybody in that building. But guys, like as we wrap up, I, I got to thank you too. And Coach uh, Billy, I work with you every week on this podcast. Um, Scott, I have to thank you guys for what I've learned just from having the conversation. And Scott, you know, we don't have enough time to get into minorities and women being hired and all of those things. But I know you're an advocate for change. I know you're an advocate for diversity. I know you're an advocate for our game being better and bigger than what it's been before. And so I can't thank you guys enough um, for, for, for all the ideas that we put out here today, man. So thank you, Scott. No, I appreciate you and have me back because we can talk we'll about do it. Because you call it an advocate. I'm an advocate for the truth. There you go. Great perspective. And that will do it for this week's NFL Total Access, The Locker Room. For more insight with a locker room point of view, check out the latest episodes every Wednesday and Friday on Apple and Spotify. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.